Hello and welcome to the Iris Murdoch podcast. Today I'm joined by Silvia Capriolio-Paniza to discuss her recently published book, The Ethics of Attention, Engaging the Real with Iris Murdoch and Simone Vey. Silvia was recently on the podcast, of course, with Mark Hopwood, discussing their new collection, The Magisterial, The Murdochian Mind, which you can find below. And this new book by Sylvia is also published by Routledge. And details of both these books can be found below in the, um, in the description of the podcast today. Sylvia is Marie Skwodzowska, Curie Fellow at the Centre for Ethics, University of Pardubice. And she's also Teaching Fellow at the Centre for Ethics in Public Life, School of Philosophy, University College, Dublin, where she is a member of Peritita, which is um, an Horizon-sponsored project. And she is co-editor of The Madokian Mind, of course, but she's also co-edited and co-translated Simone Weil's Venice Saved, which came out with Bloomsbury in 2019, which I thoroughly recommend to uh, Weil fans or indeed to those um, who just love Venice as a location. So, Sylvia, welcome back to the podcast. It's great to have you back. Thank you so much, Miles. It's great to be back. It's a real pleasure. Let's start a little, uh, I think, by finding out about your engagement with uh, Simone Vey and with Iris Murdoch. Could you uh, talk to us a little about, about who you uh, uh, discovered first um, and the kind of the, the way in which your career has kind of developed alongside thinking about these, these two thinkers? And also, why did you uh, want to work, work on this particular project? Yeah, well, this project started actually many, many years ago as I was working on my PhD uh, in 2011 at the University of East Anglia. And my original project was actually on Kitsia and Wittgenstein. And I personally think that that project led directly to this book, um, although perhaps in a not entirely straightforward way. Because my main interest there in both uh, Kitsia and Wittgenstein was the way in which they were displaying respect for reality as it was. Mm -hmm. And therefore avoiding theories and interpretation and could see in particular showing these characters who resist interpretation and telling us stories that should be seen rather than tried to interpret it. And that made me think that attention was actually a really central concept, but I found that I couldn't do as much as I wanted with attention working on Wittgenstein and could see it. And then I discovered there was this philosopher who thought that attention was really important and ethically important called Iris Murdoch. And that was the second year of my PhD. And then I changed everything that I was doing and I decided I just wanted to read Murdoch for the next three years. <laughs> Why not? Yes, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, and I had fun. And, and that opened the door for me because starting from an intuition that attention is important ethically, uh, which was also personally related for me to how we treat other animals. Mm -hmm. uh, I was always struck by the way in which uh, people don't want to hear about where their food comes from if they're eating animal products. They don't want to think about it. And uh, before I became a vegan, I also didn't want to think about it. And I thought that that was a problem of attention, of not wanting to, to pay attention to what happened before the food on the table, to the animals that were necessary for this uh, to happen. And it made me think that failures of attention or deflections of attention are actually fundamental to so many things that go wrong in our moral lives. And I know that from my own life, uh, that many, many times in which I feel that I have done wrong, it has not been uh, a, a problem with my reasoning, it's mainly been a lack of attention. And so I, I thought that it was important to investigate that, and I found in Murdoch 
so much material to reflect on the importance of attention and morality. And um, so my, my first work on attention was based on Murdoch because I wanted to look at secular morality at moral philosophy and the tradition of moral philosophy. And it was through Murdoch that I discovered Vail. And at first I was extremely puzzled by Vail. I think by like many readers, uh, sometimes I was angered by her. Sometimes <laughs> I thought that she was insane. And I hear a lot of people say that uh, until I fell in love with her. Uh, and I, somehow I, I continued reading Vail. And I moved from thinking that Murdoch was just using Vail in a very similar way, but removing God from the picture. Mm to thinking that actually they are doing slightly different things, and in some cases, very different things. And these differences come out on not the second, maybe the third reading for me, but uh, it's intriguing to see how Murdoch and Vale differ on the idea of attention and on the whole metaphysical and metaethical background that sustains the idea of attention, while at the same time, of course, coming very close at certain points and not just on the idea of attention, but also on the idea of love, on the good, of reality, of obedience, and so on. And so this book uh, was an attempt to still talk about Murdoch's philosophy and take her on as an inspiration to understand why attention is so important in morality, or at least explain why I think it is fundamental to morality, but also to use Vale's insights to sometimes support Murdoch's ideas about attention, sometimes supports my ideas about attention. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, although not very often, to show us a different way of thinking about attention, which I do only in one chapter of the book, because Murdoch is still the main character here for me. Sure, yes, you made, you made that quite clear in the introduction that um, that, that Murdoch is kind of the, the, the central figure. But of course, attention, as, as you say, is very much central to both of them. Mm -hmm. um, but. I'm interested in what, what is it exactly and how, um, you know, this, this concept of attention, how different is it, do you think, from how we might use the word in an everyday situation? Because reading your work, I was, I was struck that very much like, like Murdoch, you give real world examples to help us think this kind of idea through. Do you think there's a really strong distinction between how we might use attention in a formal setting or a philosophical setting and how we might use it just in everyday speech? I don't think so. Uh, I think that there are strong points of overlapping between Murdoch's concept of attention and the one that we use ordinarily, also the one that's used in psychology or in philosophy of mind, mm -hmm. uh, where attention is much studied much more than in ethics, where it's relatively new uh, as a concept. So I think that even though at first sight it might look as if Murdoch is doing something technical with attention, that she's trying to present this different concept that we can use as somehow part of a moral theory, what she's actually doing is reminding us that we already are very familiar with what it means to pay attention, to fail to pay attention, to pay attention maybe to the wrong things or not enough or, uh, or superficially and so on. Um, so this is interesting when, talk, when I talked uh, about my project with my friends who are not necessarily in philosophy. And at first they thought, well, what's attention got to do with morality? Um, you know, we can attend badly, we can attend to the wrong things. Um, and so I tried to chart uh, what I call two axes for the moral importance of attention that uh, try to show that actually the ordinary concept of attention is something that is fundamentally involved in morality. Hmm. 
Perhaps the one point where what we ordinarily talk about attention diverges from the concept as used by Murdoch and Vail, or the primary point, is in the possibility of selfish or self-involved attention. And both Murdoch and Vail make it very clear that when we're attending, the self is really not there. Um, and what we do talk about attending selfishly, attending to things that we only care about. And my suggestion is actually that perhaps when we talk about it, in that way ordinarily we are actually forgetting how much of ourselves is removed when we are attending i mean if we're properly attending even if the initial motivation was selfish we are actually confronted with the reality that is there so the self still seems to fall away at some point and then there is a lot to say about the distinction between uh, attention as i'm using it here following murdoch and bale and as used in psychology and the philosophy of mind it will probably take a very long time. Uh, <laughs> one of the uh, main differences perhaps is from theories who consider attention as being necessary for consciousness. And according to these theories, then attention is something that is always there when we are conscious. And that cannot be part of a theory of attention uh, as fundamental to morality, simply because we want to talk about lacking attention, about being inattentive as we ordinarily do. Mm. And these theories make it more difficult for us to do that. And it's not just thinking about person-to-person -person attention either, is it? Because your work on ethics extends well beyond the human into the animal world and indeed beyond. And you've been very active in discussing attention in relationship to animal welfare. And you've just touched on briefly about your, uh, your change to veganism. Could you say a little bit about that? Did um, Was it your kind of involvement in this particular uh, branch of ethics that led you into veganism or was it thinking or was it the other way around How, how's that been working for you yeah I think it was uh thinking about animals that made me think more about ethics in general uh I mean I, I can say that the change in my uh, perspective on animals has been probably the major moral shift in my life uh, and that occurred when I was not, not very young I was probably 23 24 mm -hmm. And, uh, and that helped me think about moral change generally and about moral failure generally, uh, what I perceive as my previous moral failures, and the way that perception and attention are fundamental to that. And when it wasn't any argument that convinced me, it was that for the first time, uh, reading an article in the newspaper about farm animals, uh, and it wasn't even an, an article denouncing farming practices. It was just an article describing farm animals. Uh, I started attending to them, to their lives, to mm -hmm. what it may mean to be a farm animal. And that is what changed everything for me. Uh, and of course, that's just that's not something that's uh, only concerning animals or vegetarianism. I think that concerns everything in our moral life. But... Uh, but for me, that's become one of the key moral questions that I'm trying to address, because in terms of, you know, numbers and exploitation and systematicity and the sheer ruthlessness of it, I think the way we treat animals is one of the major problems of our times. So I, I try to bring that into the book. This is a book about ethics in general, and so I don't see why it should not include uh, a treatment of other animals. I don't want to talk about animal ethics as if it was just one domain of ethics. Um, I think, you know, the moral psychology and the meta ethics that I describe here mm -hmm. applies to 
humans, animals, trees. Uh, I mean, attention can actually apply to anything uh, at all. So there are two chapters that deal specifically with animals. And I did that consciously precisely because I wanted to show how we don't need to make broad distinctions between morality applying to humans and morality applying to animals, especially when it comes to attention. Of course, there are differences, but I think the differences have been way overestimated. Uh, and I think sometimes the distinctions between attending to different humans in different contexts can be underestimated. Sure, I think it was, it was Philippa Foote that said we need to start thinking through plants first, wasn't it, I think? <laughs> so perhaps there's, um, not that we want to start thinking about a hierarchy of attention, but perhaps there's something there that is kind of in the mix as well. Because attention, reading reading the book and you know engaging with it, you're, you're thinking about attention isn't just about seeing either, is it? It's not just about vision and perception. Um, you want to suggest it's closely aligned with the other senses that we have. Um, you know, touch in particular, you, you make quite a lot of. And you suggest that this is how everyday encounters occur, that it's, you know, using all of our senses um, for um, perception and attention that, that's really vital. Yeah, absolutely. And there is a worry which Murdoch herself expresses in relation to Plato, that just talking about vision can be a little bit over-intellectual. Uh, so it is important and it is a fact of our lives that we attend with all the senses, with, our, with hearing, of course, with touching, and senses differ in how important they are depending on who or what we're attending to. Uh, but we do use touch a lot when we communicate with each other. Touch plays a fundamental role when we communicate and attend to other animals. And I think another point that Murdoch makes, which is very important, is that we don't need to draw a clear distinction either between the senses when it comes to attention, but also between the senses and the intellect, uh, because the mind works through the senses as well. And when we talk about attention or vision metaphorically, we're not really just talking about either, uh, we're not just talking about an intellectual endeavor. The, the realms are actually very blurred. Of course, yeah. So thinking about this, this idea of so is it more about connectivity then that attention is actually about um, connectivity between the individual and the object? I mean, to put it in, say the object make, makes it quite, you know, in, in, in some regards, regards inhuman, although it can be, of course, as you've talked about, thinking about connections with, with plants and then animals and, and, and humans as well. Do you think that there's um, different forms of attention that actually once all the senses are involved in focusing on a particular focusing on a on a particular i'm going to say object um that actually that's a, that's a, a far better use of a, a, a better um, method of attention perhaps than just this kind of perception that we said that murdoch's talking about through vision i think attention is different every single time it mm. occurs um so i don't want to define types of attention in this way because every encounter is different. Sure. And every encounter with two different humans is different. Every encounter with the same animal is different. And that means that different faculties may be involved in each encounter. Uh, so when I talk about attention as an engagement with reality and it's extremely broad definition, but it's broad precisely because it needs to encompass the more tactile engagement, the more intellectual engagement, 
uh, the more visual engagement and so on. Uh, and again, as I said, most of the time, all of these are probably playing a role, maybe not all in the same way, but they're probably usually all engaged when we're paying attention. Uh, so this is a move towards the particularity of attention, and that's always a difficulty in philosophy when you're trying to say something general, we're supposed to apply to cases that are very different. Sure. Yeah, and as you say, it does. It, it has wider implications, as you say, with with other with other subject areas as well, and other you know practical forms maybe of, of um, you know, with nursing, counselling, and, and and so on. Absolutely. Uh, wider kind of connections with the humanities in general. Do you think that what Murdoch can obviously Simone and um, Simone Vale is, is talking about does it tip into the connection with a form of mystical or transcendent attention? Obviously, both Murdoch and Vale are, are interested in. Um, in in the in God in general, you know, in, in this idea of, of moving beyond the human, do you see that as an important element as well to your work? Yes, and that's I think one of the elements that fascinates me the most about both Murdoch and Vale, and one of the elements that I'm still I think uh, grappling with because uh, it's very difficult, and I think it's also very difficult to pin down how Murdoch reads Vale on that. Uh, clearly she doesn't believe in God, uh, clearly Vale does, uh, but for Murdoch the mystical is still a very important aspect mm. of morality, in fact it's, it's unavoidable, it's fundamental. Now of course Murdoch talks about transcendent, transcendence in her own way, she talks about transcending the self or the ego, uh, which is not a religious or necessarily a mystical concept, it's just being able to see what's beyond us. But it's the idea that that movement of attention beyond yourself doesn't have an end point that can lead us towards transcendence, because you're not just transcending yourself once, you keep doing it again and again, while looking at the same object and you learn something new and something that you didn't even know was possible before. And you, you never know, it's impossible to stop, because you don't know when you're done, well, you're never done. So there is that element, uh, I think, that points towards an idea of infinity in Murdoch without requiring uh, a God or religious perspective. But mm. at the same time, again, Murdoch does talk about the importance of religion and not just transcendence and the importance of a mystical outlook. And I think that's connected with the idea of attention to the good, uh, which I relate not so much to an attention to an object, because the good is not a thing, but it's a way of paying attention to reality guided by the idea of the good, which is again, not something we can grasp. It's only something that we can intuit, but it's something that for us governs the whole of our engagements with the world. It's an aspiration to something better, to something absolute. Um, and the idea of the absolute, which is very hard to argue for. Murdoch tells us that you don't really have arguments for it. It's something you find in your experience. Mm. And, um, and this sense of the absolute uh, is what connects her with the mysticism of Simone Weil, for whom, of course, God exists and the supernatural exists. But in both, you find, I think, an attitude of wonder and love for the reality as such. And I think that's something that emotionally and spiritually draws me to them. And something that I tried to express in the coda, where I decided that I could let myself go a little bit and maybe argue a bit less and write a bit more about experience. Uh, 
and and this sense of of wonder and awe and embracing of reality i think is what connects both of them with the mystical and what i think we can find in our own experience of intense attention sure and in that particular section of course you talk about um, a real life example and of course you talk about swimming which i know is obviously important to you but it's so important <laughs> so important to to murdoch as well this idea of the spiritual dimension of swimming and um, you connect that very beautifully, I think, with uh, questions of attention. Was that, did you, did you originally think that actually you wanted to end on that particular example? Or did you feel that, that it, it just kind of flowed naturally? Um, well, at first I thought it might be a section in a chapter, but then again, it became a little bit less um, academic. And so yeah. I thought it needed to have a space of its own. Mm. But it's something I think about all the time when I swim, this idea of, unselfing of merging of well actual fluidity and letting go I and mean, this is something that you literally have to do when you're in the sea uh what Murdoch's used to swim in rivers I think about the sea but I think the experience is similar there and then I read um thanks to Murdoch's review uh Haunts of the Black Masseur which uh is a fantastic book about swimming and which she recommended uh in her in her review of it and that helped me also to think about the connections between philosophy, between mysticism and between attention and the experience of swimming. So it's not just a metaphor. I think it's also an actual experience. Yes. Yeah. An, an embedded and indeed embodied experience of, Absolutely. Uh, of attention. Yeah, that's that's great. And, I, and I'm sure for, for people listening, that's probably something that they've also experienced if they're into, you know, what's now termed as wild swimming, what we perhaps used to just call swimming but they, yeah. <laughs> as, as opposed to as opposed to going to the swimming pool yeah so um so coming back to thinking about this question of attention um and different forms of it i wonder also if there's something that distinguishes how you perceive questions of passive and active attention now mm. i think it's something that um simone Vail makes a little bit of this idea of waiting uh, and attending and i wondered if you thought that um murdoch maybe um Go, goes her own separate path at some point some Simone Weil do you, do you feel that actually their concepts of attention are absolutely wedded together or do you think Murdoch actually goes beyond what Weil is suggesting yeah, I, I think you're right in pointing out that there is this dual element of attention there is something active about it and something passive about it and these two elements have to be held together when we're attending so I on the one hand, there is eros, there is a straining towards something, wanting to see, wanting to know, mm. uh, which is more evident when we're actively paying attention. Like, I want now to know what's going on with you. And, and I look at you and I listen to you. And, well, you know, we talk about active listening, but that's this kind of attention. But once I've decided to do that, I have to take a step back because if I am being too active, then I will not be able to allow you to express yourself and allow myself to take in what you're telling me, what your face is telling me, not just your words. And that's the passive element. So I think it mainly refers to the idea that as much as possible, the self has to take a step back. What I want, what I expect, all of those things have to be put to one side. And that's very difficult. And in a sense, it's passive because I have to stop uh trying to place my expectations or my ideas on you uh but it's also very active because we we try to interpret the world in the way that we want it to be and so stopping that requires some kind of effort 
And so that's the passive activity that Vale talks about. Uh, this going against our tendencies and our temptations. But in the more extreme ways, of course, then there is, and we're coming back to the mystical here, there is the sense of attention as complete surrender to whatever mm. may come. And this is, I think, close to mystical experience, but also to Buddhist meditation, where you train the mind precisely to be still. And that doesn't mean to do nothing. It means not to allow it to move in the usual, Murdoch would say, self-concerned way that it does. And then something happens, but you don't know what's going to happen because it's the world that reveals itself to you. Yeah, and, and you mentioned, of course, in the book that um, Buddhism became more important for Murdoch, I think probably in the um, late 60s, early 70s, and, and from, from then on. And you also say that um, Vey has a connection to, I think, to, do you mention to Hinduism? I yes. think that's, that's, that's really interesting, this, this idea that um, both of them are interested in what we might think of as as, as forms of um, Eastern religion or perhaps, you know, tipping over into mysticism. Do you think also that, that that's also a kind of a, a distinguishing mark between how they're both thinking and indeed writing about forms of attention, this connection to um, other forms of non-Western religion? Yeah, I mean, attention is absolutely fundamental to Buddhism. And of course, there is a, a lot of literature on the role of attention in Buddhism. Mm -hmm. And Murdoch, as you mentioned, had also personal experiences with Buddhism and through her friendship with Peter Karadi. She, um, she read about it. Uh, she read about Zen Buddhism, which is, of course, a particular kind of Buddhism. And there are chapters in Metaphysics as a Guide to Morals, which are very intriguing for my purposes because they show that she's very attracted to this idea of quieting the mind, of being still, but ultimately she finds it too austere. And that's, these are the same passages where she talks about Zen and Baal together. And that's very interesting because she stops at some point where Zen and Baal would like to go further. Mm. She is, I think, afraid that they're austerity, if you like, which I think is just an idea of complete selflessness or absence of self, would also remove the imagination and the creativity and the positive contribution that the self can make to reality and perception. And I think she feels uncomfortable with that. Uh, she finds, she talks about Zen's imageless austerity, and she talks about Veil being too radical. Um, because ultimately she does not want to give up the self and both Vail and Zen Buddhism do want to give up the self. Mm. Buddhism not in an ontologically significant, uh, substantial way. Uh, Zen Buddhism just says that, you know, there, we don't talk about the self. It's not that there is a self. It's not that there is no self. It's neither. Uh, whereas Vail is more radical than that. And she does have a, an ontological message about the self, which is something that has to be uh, overcome impossibly, but also as, as a constant effort in order for us to join uh, the issue of reality created by God. So I think there's so much more work that can be done on this. Uh, I think it's really fascinating to chart perhaps more precisely the similarities and differences of uh, when it comes to attention, not just theoretically, but also in practice uh, between Zen Buddhism, Veil, and Murdoch on these points. But I think it's on the question of the self in attention that 
the greater differences can be found. Sure, because of course Murdoch was reading her from what the late fifties right the way through to she's you've talked about metaphysics so for about forty years so clearly there's going to be some yeah. kind of intellectual development and building upon what Vale was thinking. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, clearly, there's been you know some work done in this area before. Um, were there any particular um, other academics or writers that you were thinking about at this point in time, what you're building on? What other work out there, uh, is, is there out there that, um, that pe people could go and have a look at and uh, after they've had, a, uh, after they've read your book? Yeah, there's, uh, I suppose if one is interested in attention and questions of the mind, I would thoroughly recommend uh, Jonathan Ganeri's Attention No Self. Uh, published by OUP recently. Now that's a philosophy of mind uh, Buddhism book. Uh, it's very scholarly and um, but also very analytical. Mm -hmm. And it talks about uh, the way in which attention uh, is foundational to our concept of self and to our concept of mind in Western philosophy and Buddhism. Um, and I, I only touch upon it, uh, but it, it's something that uh, would I, I would definitely recommend when it comes to this question. Uh, but I've drawn on so many different sources in the book. I had fun. So I, I talked about all the things that I felt were connected, uh, not just in philosophy, but some, some literature as well. And, um, and, and of course, there's the whole canon of Murdoch scholarship that I did draw upon and which was extremely helpful for me to clarify my thinking about Murdoch. Um, Sophie Grace Chapel is one of the readers of Murdoch that I found most influential for my work, uh, and she's also interested in these questions of mysticism and epiphanies, of course, mm. more recently, uh, and moral perception. Uh, but yeah, I, I could mention many other. Yeah, of course. Yeah. For me. I guess people ought to just have a look at the the notes and the, uh, and the <laughs> right. to find out exactly what 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 you've been what you've been building on and and, and developing. But it is, as you say, a, it, it is a fascinating discussion and and for me thinking about how Murdoch returns to Plato th with with Simone Weil and sort of sees Plato through Weil's work I think that's also a, a um, an area that needs more discussion really yes yes uh, I mean perhaps uh, I, I think a lot of readers of Murdoch have been interested in her inheritance of Plato it's it's very clear it's very much on the surface uh, but I think, as you say, more work on the differences as well uh, between Murdoch and Vale in the reading of Plato may be useful, and the way that they inherit Plato as a mystic. Um, both of them claim yeah. that Plato can be read as a mystic, but then exactly the details of how that can pan out in a secular philosophy uh, as opposed to religious philosophy would be mm -hmm. definitely worth exploring. Yes, I think that's, a, a, again, a big project for somebody to take on mm -hmm. at some point. And you do touch a little bit on Murdoch's fiction, but obviously this is very much a philosophical work, although one that, as I said, is very accessible. Do you think there's more work to be done on the connections to attention in regard to the fiction? Um, I mean, I, I personally probably think there is, but I, again, I think perhaps in a, in a work such as yours, it's, um, it's difficult to, if you go into the fiction, it's difficult to then avoid becoming bogged down in the thinking through her novels, right? Yes, absolutely. And I know that there is a lot of debate about to what extent we can read Murdoch's philosophy into the fiction, to what extent we can use the fiction as a way of thinking about her philosophy or as examples of her philosophy. And I 
can see why it's a controversial debate. And of course, your work is very helpful to think about that. Uh, Nicholas Forsberg's work is helpful to think about that. And because it's such a complex discussion, I wanted to leave that to one side. Uh, I am mindful of Murdoch's caution that uh, she's doing different things when she's writing philosophy or when she's writing fiction. I don't know whether what she meant exactly by that or whether we should take her seriously when she says that. But I decided to remain on the safe side. And I mostly <laughs> used, I mostly yeah. decided to use other novels that were particularly influential for me. I talked about Dostoevsky, for example, as one of my sure. um, my examples. But I would love it if somebody were to do this kind of study. Yeah, again, I think it's a it, it was it was probably be a Herculean task to go through and kind of consider because obviously all the all the novels have forms of you know you can approach it in forms of conflict and thinking about you know philosophy and attention and so forth and as you say some some work has been done on that but um again it's interesting i think to consider you know whether they would be those kinds of conceptions of attention would be aligned with how she's developing her philosophical work in regards to the to her fictional work but as you say it's it's a job for somebody else uh, to to do. What about Simone Vell then? Do you think that she develops this concept of attention as she as she obviously she she um, lives a a very different life to Murdoch. She she doesn't live as long, but do you also see that there's a, a form of development that she's playing out in her work? And of course, you know, you, we, we can't really avoid her personal life as well, where she actually lived out her she 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 lived out the the philosophy that she believed in, didn't she? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, she did. And of course, the religious turn came uh, at, uh, after Veil had started writing. So we can see how she thinks about attention differently when it's uh, connected with uh, a religious metaphysics. And of course, Miklos Veil's work is, I think, uh, outstanding when we're thinking about Veil's religious metaphysics, also in placing attention in the context of it. Mm. So I, I would recommend looking at that for, for more on these questions. Um, but I think one of the reasons many readers are fascinated by Vale is precisely that she's uncompromising. And yeah. that's something that comes through when you read her work. Uh, she bites the bullet. If there are tensions, then she's very, uh, she's eager to welcome those tensions. Uh, after all, she thinks that the idea of tension and contradiction is actually fundamental to doing philosophy and to looking at life properly, because life is contradictory for her. Uh, but also, if we know something about her life, we, we can see that she did, as you said, live out her ideas uh, from working in factories to teaching in schools to going to Spain to fight in the Civil War and finally going to England um, to during the Second World War. So it's something that I, I'm always wary of thinking too much about biography of authors yeah. uh, because I know that uh, well, specifically for somebody like Vale, who talked so much about removing the self uh, from the picture, uh, she could have been uncomfortable about it. But it might help us to think about what it means to truly pay attention to suffering in particular. For Vale, suffering was one of the uh, key questions uh, and key problems that we should pay attention to. Uh, what she called it affliction. So it's not just everyday suffering, but it's a thorough, complete annihilation of the self that she had in mind, uh, which is extreme, but unfortunately not so rare. It wasn't at the time and it still isn't for us now. And attention to affliction was something that I think transformed her. 
and pushed her to take the steps that most ordinary people wouldn't take. Uh, she could have lived a much co more comfortable life. Mm. But, uh, and I think that again is, is a potentially a guiding ideal, uh, although a dangerous one in ethics is her idea that attending fully will lead you to act in a specific way without having a choice, which Murdoch echoes. If I attend properly, I will have no choice. And Murdoch says that that's the ultimate condition to be aimed at, but we can see in Vale's life what the consequences of that are. Uh, there is a sense of obedience to the reality of suffering, which forces you to stop it. And uh, I wish we could do more of that. I wish I could do more of that, uh, pay more of that kind of attention. But it's incredibly difficult, isn't it? I mean, that, I mean, um, Vale is taking on so much from the image of um, the suffering Christ, of yes. course. Um, and indeed, I think perhaps Murdoch sort of stops herself in some regard going going that far. Although, of course, she saw so much suffering herself when she was uh, working in Europe at the end of the Second World War. And again, of course, with the the connections that she had to other people that were active in the in the war effort. Um, but perhaps that also marks them out a little bit as you know, the, the differences between them and, and their kind of um, their, their vision of if you like. Yes, yes, I think you're, you're quite right. Um, there is, uh, I, I don't want to sound like I'm critical of Murdoch here because I think that she is not trying to do exactly the same things that Vale is doing philosophically and in her life. Mm. But there is a sense in which Vale is more radical than Murdoch. And as you say, Murdoch stops when Vale doesn't. Yeah. Uh, and that's, uh, as, I, as I mentioned earlier, in the idea of unselfing, which for Vale is a lot more radical than for Murdoch. And that has consequences because it's connected with a kind of attention, which for Vale means a complete annihilation of the self. And that can raise questions morally about what do we do about self-protection, self-care? Um, do we have duties also to preserve ourselves? And if the self completely disappears when you're paying attention and you're just acting for the sake of what you see, then your life, in a sense, doesn't matter. Yes, of course. And it's, I think, interesting to see that um, the, the developing um, sort of field of the ethics of care is taking on, mm -hmm. I think, what um, Vail and, and indeed perhaps a little bit of what Murdoch is saying in, in these particular areas. I think it's an area ripe for discussion and, a, and an interesting kind of um, subsection of ethics that, that um, is, you know, a, a growing and a, and a fascinating one. Um, where, where do you go next? I suppose is, is my, one, one of my final questions. I know it's a big one. Uh, I think I asked you this a little bit um, on the um, on, on the previous podcast together. Is, are you going to keep um, going with the uh, with Vale or with Murdoch with questions of attention? Or are you going to do something completely different next time? Uh, both, I think. Uh, I, there are there is unfinished business here, of course. Uh, I mean, I, I could have written a book twice this size, and I still wouldn't have said everything I wanted to say about attention. Uh, and there are things that I have left out of the book, partly because I wanted to follow Murdoch more closely on her idea of attention, and partly because that would have been uh, too big a project. Uh, for example, the idea of joint attention and collective attention, which I mention uh, at some points, Murdoch also mentions at some point, but mm. is not as important as the individual attention. An individual, of course, which is shaped by social forces and so on, but it's still a more individual kind of endeavor. And for Vale, it's definitely an individual kind of endeavor. 
So I think that there would be uh, more work to do uh, on the collective and political aspect of attention. Yeah. And one thing that I'm planning is a special issue with a colleague from Freiburg University, Isabel Kesman, uh, on the politics of attention and um, how that attention is both shaped by political factors, but also can lead us to take political action. So that's something I'm going to do. I'm also going to work a little bit more on the difference between Bell and Murdoch on the idea of the self guided by Buddhism and using Zen Buddhism as the sort of middle way that can help us think about the differences. Um, so these are two projects that I would like to continue working on when it comes to attention and that are, are not fully developed in the book. And then, of course, I have my uh, my Murray Skłodowska Curie project, uh, which is on moral impossibility. And while Murdoch is not the main philosopher there, it does come a lot from Murdoch's idea of attention as shaping mm. the limits of my world. And the question is, well, what is it that's left out? And why are those things left out? And of course, it's morally relevant, because whenever we choose and we act, we do it within the world that we can see. So what about the world that we can't see? Well, it sounds like it's going to be keeping you busy for the next few years, at least. Yeah, maybe 20. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm, well, I, we'll, we'll look forward to that, and particularly to the uh, the special issue, on, which I presume is a journal on, on um, political and group. And, yep. um, yeah, excellent. Look, look, look forward to that in, in the in, in the future. Silva, before we before we uh, close the podcast, um, for those um, those listeners who haven't yet sort of um, got into uh, got into Simone Weil or indeed might want something extra to read on Murdoch and attention where would you say to start for uh, for, for both philosophers on attention on attention in yeah. particular obviously uh, we, they, they may well get your book but what, what yeah. <laughs> yeah, of course but um, what else might they be um, reading by by Vail and Murdoch well when when it comes to Murdoch of course you you, you want probably start with the sovereignty of good and perhaps some of the papers vision and choice um, and Burdock's review of Vale's notebooks is interesting although it's very short um, but that's where we can start thinking about uh, the way that Murdoch was thinking about Vale. But Vale appears in, in the sovereignty of good very clearly it appears in Murdoch's introduction of the idea of attention so I think that those essays are a good starting point uh, and it, depending on where a reader would like to go. I started with Murdoch and got to Vale. I found that an interesting path to, uh, to follow because I changed my perception of Vale first looking at her through Murdoch's eyes and then through my own eyes. Mm. Uh, but there are essays by Vale such as Human Personality, which may well be uh, one of the entry points into Vale's philosophy, also considering it's the political and practical outcomes of the kind of attention that she recommends, or the uh, forms of the implicit love of God, which are more clearly religious and mystical, but also show us what it means to pay attention, for example, to our neighbor or indeed to the beauty of the world, which is something that we touched upon. And you can see when you're swimming. Of course, yeah. Although Vail doesn't talk about swimming, as far as I know. No, I can't think of anything that I've read on, on, on swimming. It certainly, mm -hmm. it certainly doesn't appear in Gravity and Grace. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Not that I can remember anyway. It's been quite a long time since I've read it. In fact, I, I was just thinking when you were talking that actually we, what we probably need is a, a, a full podcast just on just on Simone Vey. That would yeah. be a fascinating one to do, maybe maybe in a few months' time. Well, Sylvia, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, thank you for coming back on and um, your 
new monograph, The Ethics of Attention, Engaging the Real with Iris Murdoch and Simone Vey, um, is out now in both hard copy and in e-copy, and links to that um, are on the, uh, on the podcast page, and you can find them just below uh, the link for this. So uh, my uh, warm thanks for uh, si um, Sylvia for coming on, and my thanks to you all for listening. Thank you, Miles.